0: Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate.
1: It doesn't matter how many articles you publish about how what they're doing is incorrect or they're wrong or the people who are involved are being abusive or lying or whatever. People are going to believe what they're going to believe. And if part of what they believe is that CBS is not a trustworthy news organization, then having CBS fact-check the article saying CBS is not a trustworthy news organization is inherently pointless.
0: Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media and those who produce it. On the phone with me today is Aram Zuckersharf. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. He's a developer for Salon.com and Press Forward. He's also a new media consultant and freelance developer, building better narratives online. And uh, the reason uh, I decided to invite him on the podcast is because he's written this really intriguing article for Medium, the title of which is The Media is a Business and Journalism is a Job. Get it together. So anyway, I wanted to talk to you about this article because it uh, addresses fake news, which has uh, been on the minds of a lot of journalists in, in the last year. So what's what inspired you to to write it?
1: Well, it was the recent Facebook announcement, specifically the idea that a bunch of professional news organizations were essentially freely volunteering their time for Facebook to do fact-checking of fake news. For a lot of reasons, I found it very frustrating. I don't think that fake news is as enormous a problem as it may be painted, and also because I think it's very very representative of this tendency of news organizations to both not value themselves very highly and also to sort of given to the tech industry requests. And so I found this particular event very frustrating and very symbolic of both of those things.
0: Well, let's first of all, let's start out with the the, the idea of fake news. You don't think it's as big a, a concern as everybody's sort of painting it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, for sure, fake news is troubling, right? It's, it's bad that there are people who are out there telling lies and painting it as the truth, and there's nothing... That is incorrect to be worried about that. But at the same time, the scale of it is not as concerning as it's being painted to be, in my opinion. In the article, I do talk about the estimation I did of the traffic of the site in the NPR article about where they met and interviewed a fake news creator. I looked at the BuzzFeed article about the peak amount of fake news. And I mean, you know, the. Bloodspeed article in particular, which had it at, uh, let's see, what was it? 8.7 million over the course of three months, obviously it sounds like a big number, but in comparison to what news organizations and just the general internet gets daily, it's relatively minor. In the article, I compare it to a John Oliver video, which in the course of two months gets more than half of that. And some of them get more than that. There are John Oliver videos that got more views, and those are video views, which are more than, more significant than Facebook engagements. More video views than three entire months of the most peak fake news. And in that respect, I feel like the sort of attention that's being paid to it is in and itself amplifying it. You know, we've had fake news, we've had content fraud, we've had, you know, these weird conspiracy sites on the Internet for a very long time. And they did not significantly affect any particular elections before, and I think their impact is probably being overestimated
0: now. Yeah. And I think obviously the reaction to a lot of it, it comes from the, the results of the election. And there are a lot of I mean, there are a lot of things that the journalism, the journalism industry needs to kind of look at that election election. And maybe this isn't the lesson that they really need to be focusing on. Maybe it's more about, you know, covering different parts of the country in different ways so that maybe they have a more accurate you know, understanding of what the electorate is or what the tenor of the electric ele- electorate is. It's, the fake news seems seems like a convenient, you know, oh, it's because, you know, people are sharing all these stories. But, you know, as you're saying, people are sharing stories. Certainly, maybe it's not as big an impact as people think it is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the real thing, if the media had any issues this election, it came from our own internal decisions. You know, I think that, We were too reliant on polls that were not very symbolic of the electorate. This was perhaps a problem unique in this case because there were a lot of issues and many situations in which people were not willing to admit who they were voting for. But also, you're right, there's a big disconnect between media organizations and smaller towns I don't want to say Middle America. It's not just Middle America. It's just generally outside of like the media hotspots of D.C. and New York, because the issue is we used to have local newspapers out there, and now not so much. That disconnect caused a lot of problems because there was no one on the ground reporting on that stuff.
0: Yeah, it's a big narrative that that may well it was not paid attention to, and maybe. Even at this point, where we're doing all these self-assessments, we're actually not maybe putting enough attention on. Is that you know here's a segment of the country that we don't usually cover, that we don't credit with you know what the electorate electorate is, and now we've got this thing that, that's fake news that it seems like a convenient way to to sort of explain things.
1: Yeah, and it's not just that. It's not even just that. Like, there's also the situation of like. We don't have a lot of people who are not wealthy enough to work for free for a year in New York City in a media internship. There's not many people like that in the media. And it seems like though we were making some gains, now perhaps we are making some losses. And certainly on a diversity standpoint, we're missing a lot of perspectives there. I think it's just the the tendency in the, in the media industry is to look externally for issues. There was a great Neiman Lab prediction that basically said, we're not going to fix things until we acknowledge that we have our own internal problems. And it's not, there's the diversity issue, there's our lack of connection in uh, outside of the media cities. And on top of all that, we have monetized our industry in a way that makes us seem very untrustworthy in terms of how we implement and what types of ad tech we use. Um, Stuff like Taboola, the New York Times already wrote an article about this, and, and other people have written about it. But stuff like Taboola or Outbrain, things where we're literally pulling fake news into our page and showing it next to our own news, that's very damaging for the trust, and it's everywhere. This is such a huge issue and so badly addressed. The what was it? Did you had an article where they had a screenshot of fake news in the New York Times article about fake news? And when you get to that point, something's broken.
0: The certainly the advertising structure that we built raises a lot of concerns, and, and the idea that the only metric that a lot of outlets are using are clicks, and there are all types of things we can do to to generate clicks, but. At the same time, if that's your only metric, then and that's the only thing that's driving your decisions, and even you know, even understanding what the the value of those clicks are. I mean, you you could be you could be very niche publication that 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 has a that's trying to appeal to advertisers um, who are you know have a particular interest. You know, let's say you you want to you want to reach women you know, 25 to 35. But you, you you cast a wider net and you bring in more people coming to your page that aren't within that demographic. So in, in a way you're almost even like watering down your identity to try to, to feed this particular metric that that you know measures the success of, of what your website is.
1: The irony is we definitely have media organizations out there that are operating differently. Certainly a lot of business to business, media publications, understand that it's not about the massiveness of their audience, but who is in their audience. You know, it, it's just we have to move away from this stuff because it's damaging our credibility. Like, we can't tell someone to trust news organizations to tell only the truth and then have pages where there are things that are designed to look like news articles. there next to our real news articles. And they are fraudulent. It's not even just fake news, right? Like some of these pages are installing malware or tracking you in ways that are very questionable. And that's we're we're sacrificing our readers to these companies and technology pieces and who knows what else. And the truth of the matter is that the return we get is not sufficient. Clearly, the news media is not in a great place right now, financially speaking, in the general sense. And we're doing all of this stuff, and it's not its not even worth it. And even if it was worth it, it wouldn't be worth it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the, there's a lot of mea culpa that you see on the news when people who are sort of analyzing this about, you know— and sort of not acknowledging the fact that people don't trust media outlets for, for a lot of different reasons, some of the which, which you described. And it's so, okay, well, what is our value then? If we, we are presenting all the stuff that is, you know, I don't want to say offensive, but not something that your, your audience likes, you know, it's, you know, as you said, assembling data from people who click on a website or, or pushing stories that, that may not be factual or maybe sort of a native advertising type thing. So you're sort of blurring who you are to them. And so we've sort of created this, but we're not necessarily acknowledging that that's really part of the problem. Even if you make the argument that fake news is a a really big threat and a cause of a lot of concerns, you know, what is the alternative you're presenting to people? You know, unless you clean up your shop, there's no way for you to, you know, sort of present something of value that, you know, gives people a reason to really kind of want to trust you.
1: Yeah, and... The irony of this Facebook announcement is, like, the AP is right there, front and center, giving away its work for to Facebook for free. And also, around this, very recently, they've launched a branded content shop, and they have a website filled with articles that have Taboola on the bottom of them. Like, they are doing the very things that are making news organizations untrustworthy in the sense that readers will arrive on their page and not be sure what's real news and what's fake news. And then they're fact-checking Facebook as well. And it's just, it's so fundamentally futile to waste their resources working for Facebook for free. And for what? I mean, even if, Even if the best of all worlds, right, even if these fact-checking organizations did not do branded content, didn't have any advertisements on the page, they're still giving away their work to an organization that has plenty of money, does not need anyone's charity, and then on top of that, it won't even work. It's not a solution. In the, the piece I wrote, I noted that within hours of the Facebook fact-checking announcement, Infowars had four different pieces up talking about how terrible it was. And Breitbart had an article that was shared more time than the announcement by Facebook. And it's just, what are you giving away your journalistic credibility and your work? And in fact, it's a little bit of both. You know, we, we It's tough to to think about it because journalists don't like to think about the business side. But if we give away our work for free, especially to an organization like Facebook, we are saying that work is valueless. And that in and of itself is a big problem. It's just very frustrating.
0: Yeah, but I can't imagine what argument you would make to Facebook to say, oh, well, you know, we need to, you know, we'll do this, but we need to, you know, you need to support this as well. I mean, is Facebook even getting enough out of this to to make them go beyond what they've already, what they're, what they're doing here? Do they recognize that as a, as a fundamental concern for them?
1: I mean, they recognized it enough to make the invite. You know, I feel like, I don't know, I don't understand why Facebook necessarily feels the PR pressure to launch this partnership. In my opinion, Facebook doesn't have to care about this and doesn't care about this, but clearly they have decided that the pressure, the PR, the columnists about fake news are enough of an issue that they need to do something about it. And they paid a number of news organizations to produce live video. They're in the news recently because they might be acquiring a video studio, right? Like, it's crazy that, that you could think that they are willing to pay for BuzzFeed to produce Facebook Live videos, but they are unwilling to pay for fact-checking. What that says is how they think of and what they value as journalism. And it doesn't matter whether or not Facebook thinks that this is worth being paid for. If you are a news organization, you should think it's worth being paid for. And if Facebook doesn't want to pay for it, then you turn around and you say no. It's just not worth it to sacrifice your time, your resources, and to be honest, to work for free is sacrificing your credibility. Just so that Facebook can get a PR boost on Monday morning.
0: Hmm. It's interesting to think about this when you also include something, you know, what's been the big push in the last year in media and Facebook is, you know, the Facebook Live videos, which, you know, have, basically you're getting places like the New York Times and the Washington Post to basically create live content for Facebook. Um, And supposedly what the the outlets are getting are engagement, which supposedly drives traffic to the, the websites. You know, I'm not sure if that's been proved yet.
1: I mean, we've had two reports where Facebook has come out and said that, oops, our metrics on video were wrong, drastically wrong. So, yeah, who
0: knows? (laughs) Well, yeah, and, and, you know, I didn't go to O&A this year, but my understanding is that a lot of the discussion that was going on there was Facebook Live. That, you know, this is going to be the thing that's going to save us or this is going to be the thing that, that everybody should be putting their resources toward.
1: I think that live video is certainly useful and interesting and a great tool for news organizations. And doing it on Facebook is not something that I particularly find objectionable. But the issue is that if you are not getting paid for it, which most organizations are not, then you have to understand it as a cost, right? This is something producing video is not a costless thing. And producing live video is also not a costless thing. There's equipment, there's time to to set up for a live video, takes time and work. Once you're done with the live video, if you're really going to get any value of it, you want to cut it down and redistribute pieces of it, that takes work. All these things take work, and that work takes money. And that's, in my mind, that's a little bit of a separate issue because at least the news organizations are producing it themselves they have an understanding and ownership over the, the distribution. And there is some questions about how they are able to monetize it in the act of streaming live. But there are ways. But this, there's no way. There's no way. It's not, they're not going to run mid-fact-checking advertisements. No. Uh, yeah.
0: So what, what is your thoughts about what actually this is going to produce is that, you know, s- supposedly if there's a if you share something that you see on Facebook that a, that a window is going to pop up and say, hey, this is you know questionable news site or this and then supposed to be a link to, you know, whatever this site, this, the fact checkers are, you know, what are your thoughts about that?
1: I mean, I don't think it's going to produce anything. Like I said, the people who would potentially be impacted by that. These fake news producers are already putting steps in place to, to say, don't trust these third-party fact-check messages. And on top of that, if you believe that, you know, vaccines are killing you and chemtrails are a conspiracy by the government, Facebook's third-party fact-checking message is not going to have any impact. That's, so the whole issue is that they don't trust these establishment sources, and Facebook is just as much an establishment source as anyone else. It's just, it's just pointless. Whatever Facebook is going to produce out of this, maybe they'll be able to improve their algorithm. And certainly, you know, being able to stop the, uh, the domain spoofing where you're going to NewYorkTimes.co or something – That's a good thing. But these news organizations, what they will be producing, what they will be doing, it's going to have very little impact. It actually reminds me, we had a a previous conversation about the gaming journalism community. And this is a very similar situation to what happened during Gamergate, which is there are people who are saying things that are not true. They know it's not true but they're doing it for essentially tactical reasons and they they just it doesn't matter how many articles you publish about how what they're doing is incorrect or they're wrong or the people who are involved are being abusive or lying or whatever like people are going to believe what they're going to believe and if part of what they believe is that the New York Times is not a trustworthy publication, or CBS is not a trustworthy news organization, then having CBS fact-check the article saying CBS is not a trustworthy news organization is inherently pointless.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing that, that, that sort of came out of this reaction to the fake news from the election is, you know, people were sharing stuff, that matched whatever they particularly believed in and when it was pointed out to them as something was fake that that was not necessarily a concern They were more concerned about spreading whatever their particular message or their belief was And I think you know if digital if the digital environment has done anything I think it's laid bare as to what the audience is and how it interacts with this information I think we 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 have this sort of romantic ideal of what journalism was before you know the internet that there were these sort of sacred churches that everybody believed in but there were people who didn't trust the new york times you know you know 30 years ago Mm -hmm. um and the washington post was was constantly vilified as a as a a liberal rag and you know Mm -hmm. so now what we have in real time we see the way people are interacting with news stories and we're kind of appalled by it but this is this is the environment This is the way people interact with news and facts online. And, you know, many of them are very selfish and trollish and they're going to do what they want to do because that's what they believe in. And that's who they are. So, you know, I think you're right. I think this fact checking thing seems like it was, it's just like throwing a pebble into a lake Uh that it's not going to have that big of an impact.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I cannot see it having a significant impact and it's just, you're, you're very right. You know, people did not trust the New York Times before the Internet happened. People believed in these conspiracies. People believed in fake news. It's What the Internet has done, sure, is has made them easier to spread. But also, more than anything else, it's made them more visible. And it's we have to be careful to not confuse the part that is the crazy shit that some people believe is more visible with, People are believing more crazy things, and those two aren't the same thing, you know, and that's a big piece of this fake news issue that is also causing a lot of um, mistaken assumptions, which is that a lot of these people who are sharing fake news are sharing it because they always believe this type of stuff, and what we need to do isn't to deploy a bunch of third party fact checkers on Facebook we don't need nor should we be doing anything on Facebook to address this because that is not the location for it we need to establish better education and that's not going to happen through a screen it's going to happen in person it's going to happen by being in place by talking to people by actually showing up and and doing some education or by helping educators bring forth some education into into schools or into their communities about media literacy. Fact-checking things on Facebook when you share them is just a waste of everybody's time. And to do it for free, to do it for free as the Associated Press is to say, not, not only are we willing to waste our time, but our time isn't even worth anything. And journalism is worth something. And to do this is to say it isn't. And that's not going to help our trust issues either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The fix is in in your house. It's not this this band-aid that you're you're going to create that this is going to somehow solve that problem. That we're suddenly going to make the the internet much more truthful. That if we, we fact check some things that this'll make it I mean, because that's not going to change. None of that's going to change. And the only way we're going to, we need to be able to really, the things that we can control, um, you know, the way we tell mm-hmm. our stories, the, the things that we put on our website, the way we interact with our audience. I mean, those are the things that we, that in the long run, are going to have a greater value than this.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is the big thing. What has changed for news sites in a big way in the last decade has been that while fake news sites always look like fake news sites, real news sites are looking more and more like fake news sites every year. There's more and more uncontrolled, strange, and weird advertisements. There's more autoplay video. There's more weird ad tech that's slowing down your or potentially crashing your computer. But that is what we need to fix. We can't expect anyone to trust us when we make ourselves look like fake news.
0: Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah, we are. We have looked in the looked in the, the enemy is ourselves, and we need to fix it, as Pogo once said. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, I mean, it's just
1: like I said that that Neiman lab. Prediction article was so on point. We're not going to have a better journalistic scene. We're not going to have a better media industry until we realize that our enemy is ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yes, you're exactly right. And one of the things I've like, you know, I like having you on the podcast, and we've talked about in the past. You mentioned Gamergate, is the fact that you've have a, a generally an opinion that the the industry always seems to follow or like go down these paths of like, oh, this is going to fix journalism. This is going to, you know, pay for it. And, and in actuality that, you know, there's not necessarily one one answer and and that the business side of it is really important and getting that right. But maybe, you know, that there's no, again, with the business side, there's no one solution. We're, we're still trying to figure that out. But making decisions that devalue journalism, that that where we put our, our content for free and, you know, we provide services for free is, is not something that maybe is going to have a long-term term sustaining solution for making journalism successful.
1: I said it in the article. I don't think that making our content available for free is the mistake. I think it is that, like you said, that we need to inform the business side from the newsroom. There's the, the concept of that paper wall in journalism, that separation between the business side and the editorial side. And when the options open to the business side were limited, what they did is they went out there and they sold ads um, and they got printed in a paper and you could only do the ads that were printed that able to be printed in the paper. And notably, somebody had to lay out those ads usually who was involved on the editorial side. But now there are a multitude more of options open, and they're doing what they're doing on the business side because somebody told them we need to break even, and they're looking for what they can do to break even. I don't expect the business side to come in with editorial ethics. I expect the editorial side to go through that wall and inform the business side with journalistic ethics. Well, that's what needs to change in this era, I think, more than anything else, is that we cannot pretend any longer that the business side of our news organizations can be doing whatever it wants, and whatever those choices are don't affect the editorial side. The business decisions affect the editorial side, and if we are going to maintain our media organizations as ethical organizations, the requirement must be that – we bring those journalism ethics into the business side of the media industry. And without that, we cannot build functioning news organizations that people will trust. That's what it comes down to. If we want to be trusted, we have to operate ethically, not just in what we write, but how our organizations operate backwards and forwards. And this paranoia that being involved in the business side in any way will somehow destroy the ethics of journalism. I think it's wrong, and more than that, it's becoming increasingly clear that not being involved in the business side is very probably going to destroy a lot of news organizations because when they're not trusted, why would anyone read them? Um, And certainly, if you're operating for free, that's not a particularly healthy decision either.
0: Right. Well, Aram, this is this is uh, as always a, a fascinating conversation, and we can go for another hour talking about what's wrong with journalism. But I think <laughs> this is uh, this is a good place to stop. Thanks for for coming on. And uh, are you got any other articles uh, in you that you're going to be working on?
1: I mean, I'm working on a bunch more about sort of the impact of metadata and how that changes how we understand the internet. I, I wrote an article about authorship tests, and I hoping to dive deeper into that. And, of course, just general, more along this line type stuff, writing about media. I'm on Medium.com as Aaron and I'm on Twitter as at Chronotope. So it'll all be on there.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for coming on, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon.
1: Yep. Talk to you again
0: soon. Next time on It's All Journalism. One of my editors, my assistant editor, came in and just said, you know, I'm really glad to be working here. We have a mission, and now that mission is even clearer than, than it was before. We're here to, you know, be a voice for people to expose wrongdoing, to, you know, kind of show the light when we can and uncover the darkness when we can. And, and it's, it can kind of sound highfalutin, but that's how we felt. And that that is, you know, our mission is to be a voice for people who don't have a voice and to, you know, tell the stories that don't get told. And so, you know, for better or for worse, we, we came in to work that Wednesday, motivated and, and ready to go. And, and I was really proud of the issue that we put out that week. And, um, you know, I, I don't ever want to live that again. But, you know, I have a feeling that we could be in for some equally intense weeks and days. So we're ready to do it. In our next podcast, I talk to Rachel LeBrock, the editor of the Sacramento News and Review about their ongoing coverage of climate change issues. We also had a long conversation about going back to work the day after the 2016 presidential election and what that means for Alt Weekly's coverage going forward. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast 1. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more, and we'll send you a cool swag, like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.